and continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. I was with our elder team. We were away dreaming and praying and planning uh, for the future of our church. The days before that, I was with our staff team. We were doing the exact same thing. And I just want to tell all of you that I am so excited. I'm so full of hope for where God is leading our church. God has good things in store for us in the future. Do you believe that? I believe that. I'm hopeful for that, but I am so excited to be here with all of you guys today. Really grateful to see all of you as we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. Like I said, for the past couple of weeks, um, Scott Hetherington, Brian have been leading us through some passages, the very first parables that Jesus shared with us in the Gospel of Mark. And kind of the main idea over these last couple of weeks has been this idea that just because we have proximity with Jesus... It does not mean that we have this vibrant relationship with Jesus. Uh, Just because we have proximity with Jesus, it does not mean we have this personal, vibrant relationship with him. That means that we can come to church and we can sing the songs and and, and we can can listen to the sermon and, and spend time with other Christians and we can do all of those things and yet still, even still, We can be missing out on what following Jesus really is, on what being a disciple really is. And in today's passage in Mark 4, we're going to see the disciples fall into this very trap, and it won't be the last time we see them do this. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out, open up to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse uh, 35, going through verse 41. You can follow along with me on the screen if you'd like. John Mark, the author, he writes this. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And so after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And now listen to these details that Mark gives us. Other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm, and in the Greek, that is literally a megastorm a megastorm, developed and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped, but he was in the stern sleeping on a a cushion. Okay, detail. They woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? And so he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. Then the wind stopped and it was dead calm. And I love this literally in the Greek, it says a mega calm. (laughs) So we go from a mega storm to a mega calm. This Jesus is amazing. And he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? And so he turns from rebuking the seas to rebuking his disciples. They were overwhelmed by fear, and literally, in the Greek, you guessed it, they had mega fear, (laughs) mega fear, and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and seas obey him. Wow. Now, the punchline of this text is not ultimately about God calming the storms in your life. It's about the greatness of King Jesus. 
It's about the greatness of his kingdom. You see, Jesus is after far more than calming the storms in your life. He is after your commitment and your allegiance to him as king and our commitment to the kingdom of God that he longs for us to participate in. And listen, if he has to use a storm in your life, if he has to prolong a storm in your life to do just that and draw your heart to a place of allegiance to him as your king, he will do exactly that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Jesus. We thank you that we get to see him, that we get to know him, that we get to learn about him. And God, right now I pray for our time in your word. Would your spirit move powerfully during this time? Lord, for those that are stuck in the middle of a storm right now, God, I pray that your spirit would minister to them greatly through your word. And for everyone else who isn't in a storm, God, I pray that you would get them ready. Because we're either in one, going to one, or just leaving one, Lord. And so I pray that you would bless our time. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I loved, loved, loved looking at these books. They were called Magic Eye Books. Do you remember these? Anyone remember them from the 90s? I loved these books. Magic Eyes were really popular back in the 90s. The idea was that on the surface, you would have this really colorful, random, chaotic image, and you would just see it, and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But, but, right, if you looked at it in a certain way, you were able to see a image within the image, a hidden image, a three-dimensional image. Now, the technical name for this kind of image, does anyone know what this is called? It's called an auto-stereogram. Of course, Jonathan McPherson knows. He raised his hand. No one's surprised at all. It's called an auto-stereogram. And I remember, as a kid, being obsessed with these books and looking at these books. And the secret was, if you remember, or at least for me, you would hold the book really close and you would kind of cross your eyes a little bit, right? And look away. I'm sure all of you have different techniques for how you would try to find these books. But I remember I was hanging out with my friend Jim one time, and he was a pro at finding the images. We'd be sitting there, and he'd just be like, duck, sailboat, and I'd be like, how did you see that? And he'd just say, he'd say, listen, Ryan, start closer and go slower. And so I'd listen to Jim, and I would do it, and I'd be like, oh, sure enough, there's a duck right there. And that image right there, I'm not sure if you could see it, it was a shark. It was a shark. I want you to look at our passage that I just read today as we're in this series moving our way through the Gospel of Mark as an auto-stereogram of sorts. What we have is we have this Jesus that we see right on the surface, and we're gonna look at that Jesus. But then Mark inserts another image of Jesus, one that's just beneath the surface. One that for most of us who are Americans who grew up in the church here in America, it's going to demand that we set aside our American eyes and pick up the eyes of the ancients to see the Jesus that Mark wants us to see here. If you can remember the very first sermon that we heard in the Gospel of Mark, we were asked this question. When you decided to follow Jesus, what did you expect? When you decided to follow Jesus, what 
do, what did you expect? And we ask this question because John Mark, he presents this Jesus to us, and this Jesus, he does many things, but he does one thing in particular. Do you remember what it was? He defies expectations. This Jesus defies expectations. And we see this in our text today, but before we jump into that, I want us to look at how Mark inundates us with details in this story that we don't see in the Gospel of Luke and that we don't see in the Gospel of Matthew also. Details like Mark tells us that this story takes place during the time of day known as evening. Details like this wasn't the only boat in the sea going across. There were other boats around this boat. Now, to draw a parenthesis around this, in 1987, uh, archaeologists at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, they found this ancient boat that was dated to the time of Jesus. They noted that this boat was 26 feet long and seven and a half feet wide, and it would fit approximately 15 people. Now, why is that important? Well, how many people does Jesus have along with him as they're going across the Sea of Galilee? We've got the 12 disciples and we've got Jesus, so we've got, I'm bad at math, how many people is that? 13. And so this is probably really similar to the boat that they were traveling across. And then Mark tells us that Jesus is in a section of the boat called the stern, and he's not just in the section called the stern, he's asleep, and he's not just asleep, he's asleep on a what? A cushion. He gives us all these details. Now, you don't have to spend a single day in seminary to figure this out. John Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. So how's he getting all of these details? Well, scholars are in near universal agreement that that he had an eyewitness source, Peter. And Peter's sharing all of these details with Mark because... Peter wants the the hearers of this story, he wants the readers of this story to know this, that this actually happened. This actually happened. Now, Now listen, I understand that there are some of you here today. There are some of you here today that are on the fence about this Jesus. And you don't know about this Jesus, and maybe he's just a historical figure to you. Maybe, you. maybe you think he's a mythological character. There are some of you today who are in the middle of a storm. You are in the middle of one of the most painful seasons of your life right now. And you're here, and you're looking for hope. You're looking for comfort. And maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you found our church online. There are some of you here today who have been going to church for a very long time, and life has been very difficult recently, and you are having your second guesses about this Jesus, and you're wondering, okay, is this Jesus really who he says he is? Is he really worth following? Can he do what he says he can do, and can he do it in my life? Hear this. If this story right here is true today, it changes everything. It really changes everything. There's a mid-20th century uh, writer and novelist and most prolifically short story writer named Flannery O'Connor. And Flannery O'Connor, in one of her short stories titled A Good Man is Hard to Find, has this character called the Misfit. And this character called the Misfit says that when it comes to Jesus, we, we really only have one of two choices. 
Our first choice is that Jesus is not who he said he is. He is not God. And he goes on to say to one of the other characters in this story, if that's the case, if Jesus isn't who he said he is, if he is not God, then all bets are off. Why are you trying to be good? Why are you trying to resist evil? If Jesus is not really who he said he is, you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. But, but the misfit says, if Jesus is who he really said he is, if he is God, that changes everything. We must radically drop everything, submit our lives to him, and follow him. Now, if this kind of conundrum sounds vaguely familiar, it's probably reminding you of C.S. Lewis's, one of his most oft-quoted passages about Jesus either being a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And so, it's true. It's got to be one or the other. Jesus in the Gospels, he doesn't allow us to treat him like a mere historical figure, like George Washington, like Abraham Lincoln, like Mother Teresa, some good example. No, 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 no. O'Connor, Lewis, both say that that option is not on the table. Jesus either is who he said he is. He is the son of the most high God. He is Lord and savior of the universe, ruling and reigning at this present moment, or he is one of the greatest lying lunatic charlatans of all time. Those are the options on the table. And so looking at this story, being presented with this option, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Because hear this, it's not so much what you say, but how you live your life gives the most telling response to what you really think about Jesus. How you live your life gives the most telling response to what you really think about Jesus. And so here's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna start by looking at the Jesus on the surface, and then we're gonna wrap up our time by looking at the Jesus underneath the surface, the, the image within the image. And so if you grew up in the church, you probably have heard this passage multiple times, and you've probably heard it taught this way. Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat. They get in the boat. A storm arises. They freak out. They call out to Jesus because he's asleep. He wakes up. He calms the storm. And the punchline is, Jesus wants to calm the storms in your life. Amen. That's probably what you've heard. And listen, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. That's a wonderful application of this story but it's a wonderful secondary application of this story. And so let's begin with the secondary application of this passage. Okay, so we understand now in our modern times because of science, many things about storms and meteorological events and how they occur, and our story takes place at the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you understand anything about the Sea of Galilee, anyone ever been to the Sea of Galilee before here in the room? A few of you here. If you've ever been there, you know that the Sea of Galilee, it sits 700 feet below sea level. While 30 miles north of the sea is Mount Hermon, which stands 9,200 feet above sea level. And, and, And this sort of 
geographic situation creates a bit of a, a conundrum and chaos in the Sea of Galilee. Because the cold, cold air coming off of Mount Hermon uh, collides with the warmer air in the Sea of Galilee, creating unpredictable, chaotic weather patterns. And so, in the blink of an eye, the weather can change. Chaos can start. A storm can spring up. And so, since the Sea of Galilee is known for its unpredictability, it ends up in our story here being a sort of metaphor for human experience, for our life. And so it's one of the things that we see about storms. Since there's a storm in this passage, we might as well talk about storms. And the first thing we see here are that storms are unpredictable. Storms are unpredictable. Storms are like pop quizzes, right? I can handle a test. You got midterms, you got finals, they're on the syllabus, you can prepare for them, you can study for them, but pop quizzes, no. Pop quizzes, those are different, those are unpredictable. I remember in April of 2021, I had just finished preaching one of three Easter services at our church in Michigan. It was big, there were like 3,700 people that came out for that service. And my wife Carrie, she was on staff at this church. She was leading the counseling ministry there. And our kids were in school, in elementary school. They were settled in. And I thought to myself, that Easter afternoon, man, it doesn't get any better than this. Life is good. And we thought to ourselves, we're going to be here for a long time. We're going to be here for decades. We're going to retire here. They're going to bury us here. Well, maybe it was in Michigan. Maybe we weren't going to stay there that long. You know, it was Michigan after all. But we, we really thought, like, this is where it's at. And without going into all the gory details, some really unhealthy things started to show up in our church leadership that ultimately led to a third of the staff leaving the church within three months, including Carrie and myself. And in July of that year, in 2021, just three months after that Easter service, both Carrie and I found ourselves without jobs, without direction. The second half of 2021, going into 2022, were so deeply painful and difficult and hard for Carrie and I. And all of that seemingly came out of nowhere. It was unpredictable. For many of you right now, whether it was the, the chaos of COVID and the ongoing disruption that that season caused in your life, some of you lost loved ones, the relational trauma and stress that you've gone through in recent years, maybe the financial stress that you went through and you're still trying to uh, uh, shoulder the weight of in this season, you know, you know, you know that storms are unpredictable. They can come out of nowhere. But not only that, not only are they unpredictable, listen, this is really important, storms are amoral. Storms are amoral. And, and what I mean by that is just because you're going through a storm doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Someone needs to hear that this morning. Just because you're going through a storm doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Please notice the text. Jesus says, Jesus says, Let's get into the boat and go to the other side, which means they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, and they're with Jesus, and they still find themselves in a storm. 
And so don't let any sort of prosperity preacher or name it and claim it heretic tell you that because you're in financial trouble, because you're in relational trouble, because you have these other problems, that something's wrong with your faith. It's a lie. It's a lie. Because when we go through storms, what some of us do initially is we take this spiritual audit and we're like, man, I must have done something wrong. I've got to fix it in order to get out of the storm because God sent this storm to punish me right now. It's not true. Look at our text. They're, they're in the boat with Jesus. They're in the boat with Jesus. And so again, I think what some of you need to hear right now Those of you in the middle of the storm, God wants you to know, I'm not mad at you right now. I'm not mad at you right now. I think of the story of Job, right? Like if you know his story at the beginning, Satan, he goes into like God's throne room and God's like, hey, where you been? (laughs) And Satan's like, you know, I've just been going around the world trying to look for someone to mess with. And God's like, I've got the guy for you got a great guy down there. His name is Job. And look at how God describes him. God says he's perfect and upright, which means Job didn't do anything to do to, to get the storm he went through. Didn't do anything to deserve it. Nothing at all. And that's because, listen, God is after something far more than calming the storms in your life. God's after something far, far more than your comfort. And we'll get to that in just a second. And so storms are unpredictable. Storms are amoral. And thirdly, storms are revealing. Storms are revealing. If you really want to know who you are, if you really want to know who or what you worship, if you really want to know the scaffolding of your life, that can never be revealed in times of peace and prosperity and plenty. Listen, prosperity is a horrible teacher. It's a horrible teacher. Verse 37. Now a great windstorm developed and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was nearly swamped, but he, Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm on a flight, and there's a lot of turbulence going on, the first person I'm looking at is the flight attendant. Because if the flight attendant is going up and down the aisle, serving Biscoff cookies and beverages, we're good. But if that flight attendant straps themselves in and has this terrified look on their face, okay, it's time to panic. It's time to freak out. Ray Vanderlyn says that rabbis taught that a good disciple does what their rabbis are doing. Exactly what their rabbis are doing. Remember our definition, being a disciple means being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And so if Jesus is sleeping, why aren't they sleeping? Verse 38. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They woke him up and said to him, 
teacher, and, and, and this, is, this is kind of the problem here, not that it's bad that they viewed him as teacher, but the problem here in our story in the Gospel of Mark is that at this point, the, the, the disciples simply just viewed him as teacher, not Lord yet. Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? And have you, ever, have you ever said that to God before in the midst of a storm? God, don't you care what I'm going through right now? This is so difficult. Can't you see the waves are swamping my boat and we're about to drown, we're about to die. Don't you care about what I'm going through? Makes me think of this story from Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson. Steve Jobs, growing up as a kid, he, he, he went to church and he approached his pastor one day. He, he went to his pastor's office and he asked his pastor this question. He asked him, can God fix anything? And the pastor was like, absolutely, absolutely. And then Steve Jobs, little 12-year-old Steve Jobs took out a picture of a starving kid in Africa and he said, why can't God fix this? And the answer that he got wasn't sufficient, didn't meet his needs, and, and Steve Jobs left the church and never came back because he could not resolve this issue of what theologians and academics call theodicy. Theodicy, the idea of theodicy is a major impediment, it's a major roadblock to why so many people can't believe in God and submit their lives to Jesus as Lord because they can't reconcile this idea of a good, benevolent God in my current situation, and my current circumstance that I'm going through. You know, I've got some friends that uh, Carrie and I, we just spent some time with a couple of months ago, and we met these friends like 10 or 15 years ago at a church that we served at, and then we grew really close there, but we both moved away from the area, and we kept up from afar, but we hadn't seen them in so long, and we finally got to spend some time with them. Been over a decade, and it was so good to see them, it was so good to hang out with them, and I remember at our first meal together, we're sitting down, we're hanging out, we're making small talk, and then eventually one of them says, to us, they say, hey, I just, I wanted to share with you guys, I'm not, a, I'm not a follower of Jesus anymore. I'm not a Christian anymore. It's kind of like a bomb. Not the first time I've heard that. It's not gonna be the last time. And you see, they had gone through some difficult seasons. They had gone through some really heavy heartache at a church that they were just at, which I totally understand. I totally get and they looked around at the brokenness of the world. They looked around at the, at the brokenness that they had personally experienced and they just decided, I can't do it anymore. It's just too hard. There's too much heartache involved in, 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 in following Jesus. Too much hurt. And I want all of you to know that as I share that story, I share it with all the love and, and empathy and compassion I can possibly muster, but in this situation, the storms in their lives revealed that in the end, God wasn't really who they worshiped. They worshiped some kind of circumstantial peace. They worshiped perfect leadership in the church, which if that's what you worship, man, you are going to be deeply disappointed in life. <laughs> deeply disappointed. They thought God was this sort of divine administrator that was supposed to make all of those things a reality and since he wasn't making it a reality, he either must not be real or must not be worth following. 
So storms are like MRIs or CAT scans. If you really want to know who or what you worship, if you really want to know what's going on inside of you. So it's August 2021, just weeks after both Carrie and I no longer worked at our church. We bought Carrie and the kids some plane tickets to come out here to Seattle to visit with her parents. I had this trip planned to Turkey to study with some professors and some pastors and some people. And I got home and Carrie and the kids weren't home. And I got up in the morning like I do and I had this chair in an office that I would go sit in every single morning. And I remember it like it was yesterday because the sun was shining in and I could hear the birds. And I opened up to the book of Psalms. And let me tell you, church, uh, I've been in the book of Psalms ever since. I wish I could tell you I've been reading through my entire Bible, but I have been stuck in the Psalms for over two years now, and I had opened up the Psalms, and Psalm 91 tells of the enemies attacking, but it also says this, that our God is a refuge and a fortress. That's what it says. And it was at that moment where the bottom had fallen out of our lives where I was presented with a decision in my life. Do I believe this stuff or not? And through tears and through literal wailing in that room, I closed the window so my neighbors wouldn't hear. I said, I'm gonna lean in. I'm gonna try, God. I'm gonna try. How you live your life gives the most telling response to what you really think about Jesus. And storms will reveal that. They'll test that. So who is Jesus to you? Because listen, if he's just a teacher, if he's just a good moral example, you will not make it through the storms. You won't. And this is where we come to the image within the image, the Jesus beneath the surface. You see, you have to understand that the ancients viewed the sea as the most untamable, undomesticated entity and force in the entire universe. No one could tame it. And about 175 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, uh, in Israel, there was this evil ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he declared to the people of Israel, he said, I am God. Even the seas obey me. And all of the people of Israel universally decried this man as a heresy, as a heretic, and as blasphemous because they knew that only God could tame the seas. Only God had the power to do that. And here we have Jesus. And in John chapter 10, he declared his deity. He said in this chapter, I and the Father are one. Two chapters earlier in John chapter eight, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And he declared this truth, this reality, in front of a bunch of religious leaders who when they heard it, picked up stones to kill him for his blasphemy. Remember just a few weeks ago in Mark chapter two, those four friends who brought their paralytic friend to Jesus to heal him. And what did Jesus do? Jesus healed him, and everyone's cool with that, but then Jesus did what? He forgave that man of his sins. And that was not so cool. People did not like that, because only God can forgive sins. So now Jesus is in the middle of this storm, 
And he says out loud, be quiet, calm down, peace, be still. And the seas calm. But how do the disciples respond? They're full of fear. They're afraid. Why are the disciples so afraid in this moment? Because in this moment, they realize what they're seeing. But this story in this moment is not just about this Jesus who is their rabbi teacher calming the storms in their lives. They understand that this is a declaration of deity. That by doing this, Jesus is showing, I am God. And so this Jesus in this story, listen, he is more than just the healer of your body. He is more than just the fixer of your marriage and your relationships. This Jesus is more than just the provider of your needs. This Jesus here is God. He's Lord of the universe. And so what we see here right now is Jesus is displaying his ultimate authority. His ultimate authority. And what does it mean when a person exercises authority? Well, what it means is that that person has the final say over everything within their rule and their dominion. So many of you, you're going to leave church here today, and you're going to go home, and you're going to watch your beloved Seahawks take on the Arizona Cardinals, right? Yes? Am I right in assuming this? You see, in a football game, the ones with ultimate authority are not the big, strong athletes, And they are not the coaches with the game plan, but they are the little old referees and umpires who, with the blow of a whistle or the throwing of a flag, can change the trajectory of a game or determine the outcome of a game. They are the ones with ultimate authority. And so you might be thinking right now as we wrap things up, okay, Ryan, what does this all have to do with me? What does this have to do with the profound loneliness that I feel? What does this have to do with with this untamable stress and worry and anxiety that burns in my heart? What does this have to do with my, my, my current financial distress? What does this have to do with what my kids are going through? What does this have to do with me right now? Well, what this means is that if Jesus is God, He is your Lord. He has ultimate authority, which means Jesus has the final say over everything in your life. What that means is that your boss doesn't have the final say. Now, don't go into work tomorrow and tell that to your boss. It means that your friends your family members, your enemies don't have the final say. It means that doctor's report doesn't have the final say. It means that your bank account balance doesn't have the final say. Jesus does. He has all authority in your life. He is ruler. He is captain. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this reality of who Jesus is? One word. Faith. Faith. Jesus says to them in verse 40, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Don't you understand who's in the boat with you? I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just your friend. 
I'm God. I'm God, guys. And so hear me now. Your level of faith is contingent on your understanding of who Jesus is. So again, my question, who is Jesus to you? Listen, it's why it's really important that we have the habits and practices and disciplines of gathering together every Sunday to learn under God's word and worship together with God's people. It's why it's so deeply important and critical in your life that every day we are in God's word and we are spending time with him, not just to run through a series of religious to-do items, but listen, because through those things, God is laying a foundation in your life of who he is so that when you inevitably go through storms in life, you can know with confidence who is the captain of your life. God's word says no temptation has overtaken you. God's word says rest assured he who began a good work in you is going to finish it. Your faith has been built. It is a gift from God and it has been built to endure the storms you will go through in life. Jesus dwells in you through his Holy Spirit And because of this, when you find yourself in Christ, you can make it through any storm. One last thing in our last minute as we wrap up. Um, The early listeners who would have been hearing this story for the first time, many of them Jewish individuals, hearing this gospel story as they were listening about the storm and Jesus and the disciples, they would have had one other person in mind as they were listening to this story. It would have been Jonah. They would have been thinking about Jonah during this story because the similarities are just too striking. Both are in a boat. Both are in a storm. Both had to be awakened by sailors. uh, But there's one difference. One difference. Jonah, in a moment of despair, trying to flee from God, says, throw me into the water and the seas will calm. Jesus stands up from his slumber and says, be quiet, peace, be still, and the seas calm. And Matthew 12 says, as Jesus is teaching on this story of Jonah, he says, I am the true and better Jonah. That is who Jesus is. Because on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus went through the storm of storms and conquered death once and for all. All of us will go through storms. All of us will have to endure storms. All of us will die in a storm. But none of us have to fear these storms. None of us have to fear them. Because if Jesus conquered death, if he went through the storm of storms, when our lives are hidden in Christ, you and I will be able to conquer death and get through any storm. We will overcome any storm that comes our way. And so again, I end by asking you this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? C.S. Lewis wrote this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. So who is Jesus to you? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a good historical example with good ethics and morals? Or is he Lord? Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus. Lord, I pray for those in this room right now who are going through storms. Lord, you see them right now. You see the pain. You see the heartache. Lord, you hear their cries. Your word says that you are near to those who are brokenhearted. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of their storms, you would comfort them. And God, we do pray that these storms would end. We pray for deliverance from these storms, God. But above all, Lord, we pray that the work you desire to do, the storms would come to pass. Jesus, you have our good in mind, and so as we go through storms, Lord, I I pray, Father, would you draw our hearts to you? Would you humble our hearts, Lord, so that you would be our Lord? Not just a teacher, not just a good example, but that our lives would be submitted to you. God, storms are real, storms are hard, storms are difficult and they're painful. The questions that arise from these storms, God, I know that you understand them. You do not condemn us for wondering, for doubting, for questioning. But God, would you fix our eyes on you in this moment? Would you help us to see the Jesus beneath the surface? That he is not just some mere good teacher to follow, to to learn some life hacks from, but that he is Lord and Savior of the universe and he is worthy of our worship. And Lord, you can take everything else from our lives, but if we still have you, Jesus, we've got everything in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the heartache. Jesus, would you help us to believe that? As we sing this next song, God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith so that we would sing this by faith, believing that we want nothing else but you, Jesus. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.